my books that you wouldn't normally think of in terms of sort of liminality and precarious situations and so it's kind of causing you to think out of the box a little bit I'm going to start with a, a little bit of a story so in actually it was way back in 1993 shame to admit I did my PhD and I went to the Costa del Sol did ethnographic research in the Costa del Sol in 1993 to 94 and wrote a book called The British on the Costa del Sol. Well, over the years after that, something kept happening that people kept... I, I actually went on into a job like this, in, in a research centre like this, that struggled for funding like this does, and, and worked with quantitative methods, so completely different. But, but over the next, I don't know, 10, 15, maybe 20 years, I kept hearing from different people who were doing research on other kinds of migrations and saying, I think there are parallels with the British on the Costa del Sol. And we went to conferences and we'd meet with these people and, and they were talking about other moves that didn't fit into any of the other sort of characterizations of migration. You could not think of it as economic migration. You couldn't think of it as labor migration. People were talking about retirement migration and that sometimes fitted and sometimes didn't. And so it's been much more recently that Michaela Benson and I um, actually put a few of these... Because what happened first, I just thought, oh, this is driving me mad. People keep asking me about other people. So I started with a list of names in, just in a document so that I knew who everybody was. So I could say, oh, you ought to talk to that person and that person. And then it turned into a website so that I could keep everyone there. So we, have, we now have something called the Lifestyle Migration Hub where you can find all these people. So it kind really bottom-up kind of conceptualisation here that Michael and I said, you know, maybe we should put some of these stories together and start to think, what is it, and theorise about what is it that we're talking about here? What is this phenomenon? Is it something new? Is it something distinctive? And, is it, and can this label lifestyle migration, does it help us understand it? So we wrote the edited volume, and that's the sort of definition. So um, we're talking about relatively affluent individuals moving part, full-time, permanent, temporarily, so it's often quite a fluid movement. But the key thing is, the key two things are this relevant, relative affluence and seeking quality of life, and they define this quality of life in various different ways. But what I'm going to talk about now is how, although they are relatively affluent, they're not always absolutely affluent, not always affluent in the destinations that they go to, and certainly not always in the destinations they've left. And they can end up in pretty precarious situations sometimes. And it seems to be because of the way that their migration is managed and governed that it's always the same vulnerable groups, women, children, elderly, that seem to, and poorer, working class, that seem to fall through the nets. So that, that's the kind of thing I'm going to be talking about here. To give you an idea of the types of people we're talking about, so for example, we're talking about people like British people moving to rural France, coastal Spain. We're talking about what Mary Corpola calls Westerners seeking the vibes in Varanasi, India, Japanese retirees in Malaysia, and even corporate refugees in, in the Midwestern United States. So, yeah, so, so they're seeking the good life, and, what, and this is how they describe it. You know, we, we're looking for a better way of life. It's often anti-materialistic. It's often seeking slowness and tranquility and peace and those sorts of things. And they often use the language of escape. And we, we haven't invented the term lifestyle migration. It's been used by other people. 
So Caroline Knowles and Douglas Harper wrote a book about British in Hong Kong a long time ago. And they used the term lifestyle migration. They, Caroline Knowles talks about it as a way of thinking about migrants. And she's saying there's a lot of uh, slack and slippage. And she acknowledges that legal migrations can end up undocumented as people sort of shift in and out of frameworks. And that skilled migrants can also be economic migrants. So she's not saying that this, this is just sort of this separate category. The, the description of lifestyle migration is not intended to flatten motives to a single dimension. It's one that also acknowledges the inseparability of economic factors like income and the quality of life it supports. So we're not trying to sort of encapsulate this kind of pure separate migration. We know there's overlap with other types of migration, but that we were saying that there was something fairly distinctive. More recently on research on British people in Malaysia, Paul Green has written about what he lifestyle migrations. Um, he says, but let's not forget economic migrants also engage in projects of the self and indulge in an ongoing search for a better quality of life. And, and economic concerns and motivations are also relevant to the lives of lifestyle migrants. So studies have tended, when they've been describing these migrants, to focus on their relative privilege, how it is that they can afford to go to other parts of the world, what has happened historically, the global structuring of nations and groups, and of course, things like you know, colonial relationships and how they have led to the, to the hierarchy of the, of the world as we see it now. So we, we are acknowledging that these migrants are located in global and historical relations of political and economic power. And we are talking about migration that's enabled by relationships that's developed over centuries. It's shaped by colonialism in various different ways, not least that these people live in richer parts of the world and go to you know, less rich parts of the world. But it's not just that, it's about having a language, you know, speaking a language that is also spoken somewhere else, whether that be English or Dutch or, or German or whatever. That these migrations tend to often follow old colonial routes. But they might also follow tourism routes, so they can often be a sort of a, an extension of tourism to so people moving to places that have been settled by mass tourists and then turned into to migration routes. And then, of course, they're also shaped by new economic relationships. So, for an example, in Malaysia, there are free trade zones being set up, and we know about Europe as a, a place where it encourages free movement within the boundaries, and that gets interpreted to mean all sorts of interesting things. And also different countries having special visas now. And I only heard, I think it was yesterday morning on the radio, that the Portuguese have been boosting their economy with this, what they call the gold visa, that's encouraging people to buy second homes and invest lots of money in the country. And you only have to live there for two weeks of the year to get this special visa, but you have to have enough money. And it's been taken up by Chinese people more than any other nationality at the moment. But very importantly, these don't have to be people who are wealthy in 
in real terms. Yeah, I forgot to say also that we're not just thinking about economic capital that these people may have and these historical relationships, but also very often that they have other forms of capital that they're able to use. So it might be linguistic capital, it, it might just be colour, it might be embodied various forms of embodied capital. So this sort of sense of privilege and being able to move and being able to be accepted in certain ways when you do move. But want to also remember that that this is relative. So, for example, Malaysia. So I just want to... The, the, I did my research in Spain in 93 to 95, and then I went back in 2003 to 2005 and did a 10-year update, which suggests that the next one's due. I just can't find the money for it. Um, all the time. But we've recently got money to, to go to Malaysia and Thailand. So I, I went to Malaysia for a short period of time. Unfortunately, didn't have enough money or time for an ethnographic study, but fairly short study in Malaysia and Thailand. The research assistant, Kate Bottrell, went to Thailand. And we're very interestingly doing a comparative study with Hong Kong Chinese moving to China. Again, very similar sort of rhetoric that these are wealthier people moving somewhere saying they want a more peaceful, calmer, quieter life, get away from the hustle and bustle, and they're able to buy that different way of life. So very often these migrations are shaped by things like property development and special visas. So for example, in Malaysia, Malaysia has the MM2H visa. Has anyone ever heard of this? It stands for Malaysia, my second home. It's a special visa. It's been running for quite a long time now. The top participating countries are China, Japan, Bangladesh. Uh, so Britain is there, but it's quite a long way down the list. So one, another thing we want to draw attention to is that we're no longer necessarily thinking white Westerners when we're talking about the global elite. And things are changing, things are shifting. Um, but a lot of British people and American people are also taking advantage of this visa. And the idea is to attract wealthy second homeowners. What they really want you to do is, is to buy a second home. It's called a social visit pass, so they don't really want you to settle too long. Not really. You can bring family, and they very proudly say it's open to all, race, religion, gender or age. But you have to have at least £90,000 on deposit. So you have to prove that's in your bank account, the equivalent of £90,000. Plus an income of at least £2,000 a month. You know, in Malaysian terms, that's quite a lot of money. There are also quite a lot of stipulations about how much, if you buy property, it mustn't be a cheap property. It must be a certain amount spent on one, and this changes quite a lot. The amount you have to have on deposit changes quite a lot, quite regularly, and the amount you have to invest in property changes quite regularly. You can bring a car, but there are also all sorts of regulations around that as well. Thailand has the uh, non-immigrant O, the long-stay visa for a retired person. Again, it's not, not limited to a certain race, culture, religion, or anything like that. But this is people over 50 years who have at least £14,000. So this, this is already quite interesting, so the equivalent of £14,000. When we spoke to British people in Malaysia and Thailand, there was this kind of, well, I'd really like to live in Malaysia, but it's too expensive, so we chose Thailand. Or Thailand's nice, but they're the wrong kind of people living there. So Thailand's like the cheaper version in this kind of East Asia assessment of where we might go and settle. And I'd really like Singapore or Hong Kong, but I can't afford that at all. In Thailand, you need an income of just over £1,000 a month, which, you know, again, in, in high terms, that's huge amounts of money. 
So there are these sort of frameworks enabling this kind of, of uh, movement, and also, of course, we can understand in other parts of the world things like the European Union and, and free movement, and other things that are enabling it, like being the right colour or speaking the right language, also make it much more comfortable as something that people might consider. So, for example, one woman I interviewed told me that you know, she's really aware of when she walks into a hotel, that she's looked at a specific way because she's white, when she gets a taxi, she's, she's treated a particular way because she's white. She knows that if, you know, when, when she opens her mouth and can speak English uh, very clearly and, and pronounce it well, that, that, she's, that it will open doors for her. So, they're the ones that, that's the sort of framework and really emphasis on the, on the affluence. But increasingly in this field, we've started to, first of all, it was about defining the field, what is it? So most of the literature was about, you know, what is lifestyle migration? And it was very phenomenological, you know, looking at the perspective of the agent and what kind of things do they seek and what do they want and how do they live, so it was fairly descriptive. And then later, it's become had much more of a structural focus on. You know, people have started to say, well, we ought to recognise, you know, that these are people who are privileged in, in, in structural and historical terms. So there's been much more emphasis on that. And more recently, then there's a shift in the field towards saying, but you know, what we, should, we ought to do is is talk much more about the interaction of, of structure and agency. And I think this is a shift that's happening in a lot of fields everywhere at the moment. And how you know those things that suggest privilege, those historical relationships that suggest privilege, and the actual what what happens on the ground and how you negotiate these various different limits and opportunities will be different for different groups, and they shift and change, of course. So, a quick plug for my book, International Migration and Social Theory, <laughs> that I published last year, well, 2012. In there, I do a quick review of migration theories, but I also propose that the use of various different social theories, Giddens, Bourdieu, Etienne Wenger and others, to talk, to, you know, to be able to talk about migration as something that's, you know, that's a process that evolves out of this interaction of structure and agency. So there have been various different conversations going on in various different publications, and I've put a list at the end of the slides talking about people, how, how people are relatively wealthy in the new destination, not necessarily wealthy in absolute terms. So the examples, different people have been writing about different groups. So Mary Corpola, for example, she did her research on what she calls Westerners in Baranasi, because that's who ident how they identify themselves, mixed Western groups. She said quite a lot of them are Israelis, but you know, real, real, real mixed groups. They tend to speak to each other in English. And these people she did her ethnographic research with in, in Varanasi in India, they, they're not living, you know, this is not about luxury, this is not about having masses of stuff. It's about that they go there, they go home for six months of the year, they muddle along wherever they can earning money in a bar or selling stuff and, and just, just get enough to can't get by and then go back to India for several months. And there's a time that they all tend to turn up so the community exists for a few months every year and then it kind of disbands and they go off to their own countries and then they come back again. So the, you know they're living in poverty, you know, depending on how you define poverty. But she points out that of course 
they tend to romanticise poverty. It's a poverty that they kind of want and seek, and, and, and of course it's their choice, and they tend to overlook when they describe this. So to some extent, it's their choice. I, I haven't done the research in Turkey, but I wrote with Aslem Nidrali, because she was finding it difficult to get her writing done, about British in Turkey, and we had a long, long chat, and very lots and lots of similarities with the Brits in Turkey and the Brits in Spain. And these are very often working class people who can't really want a bit of this nice moving to the sun, can't quite afford Spain, so they choose Turkey as a cheaper option. And doing all sorts of things, like they shouldn't really be there, they're on these short stay visas, they're just muddling along on little bits of scrappy bits of money, nipping over to the border and getting their visas renewed and things like that. Actually, quite a lot of difficult situations there that she's describing. And then Matthew Hayes has started to write about American citizens in Ecuador, and he's saying that, because I don't know if you know, but lots of North Americans now move to Mexico, Costa Rica, Panama, which just conjures up all sorts of... You, you could have a wonderful graphic of this, couldn't you? You know, the border that's closed one way is almost managed to get through, but they flow the other way and it's wide open. Off they go into Mexico, have retirement homes and things. <coughs> But Matthew has, has done research with uh, American citizens in, in, who are living in Ecuador, and he says that they, they kind of choose Ecuador because they can't really afford anywhere else. And they're finding him very difficult to stretch their pension in America since the crisis. You know, so we're actually talking about people who aren't necessarily incredibly wealthy, who are just looking for somewhere nicer to stretch out their pensions. So that's kind of Ecuador's the poor relation of these people living abroad. I should sometimes explain my pictures, but I think it's fairly obvious. This is, they're both in the Costa del Sol. That's the British migrants having a stall at an international fair. These are some adverts for the town friar, talk of the town, various live sports. Gives you a little bit of an insight into the way of life for some of them. So what I want to say is that um, just having a little bit of a look at... Thailand and Malaysia to start with and just the research we've been doing not trying to say that these people are all poor and we should feel sorry for them but more trying to say that because the, the way these migrations are governed and ruled and managed it's quite flexible and open instead of those boundaries being therefore open and fluid, people end up kind of falling through the net a little bit if they're not able to respond in the right way. So, for example, the rules about what you have to do to be a, to be a proper residence and how to get your visa and, how, and what sort of visa you're allowed to have and things like that. Well, for example, not everyone has enough money, but they still want to try to live like that. So one thing they've been known to do is share this pot of money amongst themselves. I'm sure you've all heard these sorts of stories before. So you say, well, I'll lend it. You can put it in your bank account for long enough to get your visa, and then I want it back, that kind of thing. Or they have, it's fairly typical that they have this short-term visa, and then they nip across the border and get their visa stamped, and then so that they look as if they've left the country and come back. Or they fiddle the, their income so that it looks as if they've got an income. But that's them being very creative and responding very much as, as fairly powerful agents in being able to manage this situation. But it works the other way as well, because 
as the government, and let's not forget that governments are not governments, they're agents as well, and they manage things, and they have to keep an eye on what's going on and have an idea of what they want and what they want to keep and who they want to keep and who they want to shut out. And so they're doing this as well. There's this constant shifting going on, so the amount that you need to have keeps fluctuating. So when they've realised that they're letting in too many of the poorer people, then they've shifted the amount. Or there wasn't getting enough people coming in, so that it might go lower and stuff like that. So I spoke to um, a guy who works at the consulate in Penang, and this, this is what he said. So strictly speaking, people shouldn't be allowed to come in and out on the three-month visa. But they do, they go to Singapore or, or Thailand and they do what they call the Thai run. So it's become so well known it's called the Thai run. They're not supposed to do it. And if the Malaysian government or official decides to crack down, they can just say, go on the Malaysian make second home, that's the visa, or get out. And we've had people who do the Thai runs who deliberately lose their passport so that we can't see. And as I was interviewing him, somebody came in and said, I've lost my passport. <laughs> I just looked really uncomfortable about the story he was telling about how he'd lost his passport. And I've never been verbal before and I can't make it out. Did you lose anything else, sir? No, my wallet was still fine, but I just lost my passport. <laughs> it's like illustrating it. So I said, well, it's a pretty insecure way to live for some people then. And he said, yes, but they don't really think about that. These people have been doing it for years with no problems, and then there's others being caught and had problems. And you, I, I, it did make me wonder, you know, we're talking about sort of elite, affluent groups, and here they are living these lives that could be completely disrupted at any moment. And it kind of challenges that picture a little bit. So that's just thinking about visas. That's one, you know, one thing that gets changed. Another, another thing that ways that groups are kind of managed and permitted to stay and permitted to settle is, is through what we might think of as these soft policy areas, like health and housing and things like that. So we also had a look at those. And I'm sure you guys know more about all this than I do. I'm not a policy analyst by any means. But you, know, you, you could get yourself this nice visa to Malaysia, Thailand, Singapore or whatever, and these countries are, you know, they're overtly wanting to attract these migrants. And this is no accident. This is like conscious. We want to attract these people because it's good for income. But then there are all sorts of tangled up rules and regulations about what you're allowed to own and if you sell it, what happens to the money and how much tax you pay and where you pay tax. And it gets incredibly, mind-blowingly complicated. If you can afford a lawyer to help you sort it all out, fine. If you can't, we did some forum analysis of the forums and the stories that go backwards and forwards and the debates and how people keep telling each other different stories and the dreadful stories about people who've lost things. It's just quite mind-blowing. So, so, for example, in Thailand, you're not allowed to own land, um, therefore not property, which, but you can buy one through a spouse, but then, of course, um, you become dependent on that spouse. And there are some stories that you hear um, that Kate in Thailand heard of, of people, you know, being quite duped into buying a house with a, with a Thai wife and then being kicked out. So they didn't get to keep their house. So these things can work both ways, you know, exploiting the other. But there are all sorts of... So you can, you can purchase a house through a 30-year leasehold agreement. So you can have it on lease. It's not very secure. It's just 30 years. Not all that long. You can purchase it through a, a Thai spouse. Or you can set up a shelf company or a nominee ownership with a Thai associate. But that associate has to have at least 51% share. But what I understand some people have done 
is to go through a tie associate and a lawyer, and then the lawyer kind of pretends that they're holding a share, but really it's the, it's the foreigner that's holding the share. So again, the sense that, that these migrants are being very, very creative, and they find all sorts of marvellous ways through these different difficulties. But then the state comes back and says, well, hang on, we need to pull that back again a little bit. So recently the Thai state has cracked down on the purchase of land through nominee ownership and they're, they're offering rewards of up to 20% of the land value for people who, who report you know, on, on these people who, who are doing this. And penalties, heavy penalties for lawyers and consultants who are, who are aiding this. So lots of evidence there really of, of sort of what I call boundaries in practice. Boundaries are, boundaries are something that are practiced, they aren't something that are fixed, they're something that people negotiate and, and they shift and they're you know, re reinforced and opened and closed. And I like the concept of practice, but from Bourdieu, in the sense that they're you know, constant interaction of structure and agency. Um, similarly, in, in Malaysia, there are conflicting and changing rules about what you can buy and what you can sell. There, it's much more about um, second home ownership and that's what they want to encourage but um, when you get a Malaysia my second home um, visa you go through the Ministry of Tourism and Culture and I think that's really really gives, gives you a, a, an insight into how they're viewing this they're not viewing this as migration and that's another interesting aspect of this that all around the world where this kind of migration is being encouraged they don't really think of it as migration so the, so the government's thinking about investment and encouraging people to come and have these visas, but they're not really thinking in terms of people coming and settling and therefore maybe having all sorts of needs that come with settling. Not least being able to have your own home and settle and make somewhere a home. Now, owning your own home is something that's very, very central to getting a feeling of being settled and having a, and having a feeling of belonging. But I, I just think that's really interesting. It's managed by the Ministry of Tourism and Culture, this visa. And it's a visa, not a passport, but it's for 10 years. So, um, And then another aspect is, is health. So another area, I mean, is health. So in Malaysia and Thailand and, and other countries, the growing number of countries in, in East Asia are, are developing a state-supported medical tourism industry. And so, you know, that they see it as a way of generating income as incoming money. Um, and, and it's state supported. And in Malaysia, their medical tourism industry is uh, it's taken up by Indonesians more than any other group. And it's huge income for Malaysia that Indonesians are coming over and using um, state supported medical health. But the costs are calculated in relation to private health. So um, people who come from Britain who are used to a national health service and who think, okay, this, we can use the services, oh, there's a state service, but the, the cost is not free like it is in the UK, and the costs are, are, are similar to our private costs. So people are getting themselves in a, in a dreadful muddle there as well. They should really have insurance, but medical insurance costs are, are phenomenal. And in Malaysia, for example, I, I interviewed some agents because the Ministry of Tourism and Culture recommends that if you want a visa, you go through an agent rather than try to do it yourself. And then they have agents that they um, recommend. So I spoke to some of these agents. And they're actually advising people not to get insurance. 
They're saying don't bother with health insurance because you can just pay as you go. So they talk about this, pay as you go. Which of course is okay if you don't have much go wrong, but it's not okay if you have long-term illness or if you, you know, when you get older and things, you get more and more things that are likely to become more. But what's going on is that they're not being seen as migrants, they're being seen as people who are very, very wealthy. They're viewed as very wealthy people who can afford to pay as you go. And then if not, they'll just go home and they're, you know, they're not here to live anyway. And uh, uh, then on top of that, a lot of the people we interviewed who were older talked about how their pensions, they can get their pensions, but they don't have any reciprocal arrangement with these countries. So when they take their pension and they move, this is another reason why they do visas rather than get the more permanent visas and manage this kind of situation where they pretend they haven't moved, but they have. But if you, if you say, I've moved abroad, depending on where you move abroad to, you won't get any increments to your pension. So your, so your pension from that moment on is frozen. And if, as has happened, you know, the British pound devalues in relation to, to the Thai baht and the Malaysian ringgit, and it's frozen in real terms, the amount of money these people have settled on is just, is just plummeting. So, just, so this is one quote from somebody in Thailand, and he said the worst thing here is about is the medical costs. I've had problems with my throat, which cost me a fair bit of money. I'm still too heavy to get insured yet. I've lost about 10 stone. I'm still going down, but I've, I've got even 8 or 9 kilos to lose. I'm state there. And then I get insured. And until then, I've got to pay for medical insurance, and I can't insure my wife until I'm insured. They don't insure ties, which is begs all sorts of questions. She can claim <coughs> back on my insurance once I get it. And this consulate employee said uh, in Malaysia, I think the MN2H visa is a good thing. The problem is you are supposed to get health insurance, but a lot of them are not. They're over 60 and still they let them in. Um, we've got a lot of people that aren't insured and that is a worry. They come to us and we can't help them. All we can do is go to family in the UK and ask them for help. The British government does not try to help financially. They're not in a position to help these people financially. That is a potential problem. We've had people that have found they've got cancer and the drugs cost several thousand ringgit a month, no insurance, so people like that will go back to the UK. I've tried to tell the UK government they ought to maybe be thinking about this, but they don't really take any notice. Until it's huge numbers, they're not going to be interested. So that's Malaysia and Thailand. I'll just tell you a little bit as well about Spain, because I've done ethnographic work there for a, a long time, and... I wrote a paper quite a long one, but I mean before actually, before the financial crisis. And since then, Kelly Hall, Charles Betty, and now, Irene Hardle have been writing papers about some of, the, some of the dreadful experiences that some people are having. Now, in Spain, you really do get this distinction. You know, you've got richer, middle class, fairly comfortably off migrants, and you've got poorer ones. But some of these people, you have to picture that they. Maybe they were made unemployed or they were running a business. And I'm, and I'm talking about before the crash here. So this has surely got worse. But they, you know, maybe the business was struggling, they weren't earning enough money. Maybe they got divorced and they found that the, you know, they had to rethink how they lived their lives. Um, they described things like you know, 
the crime rate where I lived was incredibly high and I was really depressed about the future for my children. If I didn't move, they were going to also get involved in, in drugs and crime in this area. And so we wanted to get out and so we moved away for those reasons. Or they say that, you know, I'm old and I'm just getting this basic pension and it, it's just enough to live on, but why would I live somewhere grey and miserable and cold and I can live in the sun and it's, and it's cheaper? So there are lots and lots of people who aren't really incredibly affluent who've made this move. Now, the problem is that when they do that, they don't do it within the legal frameworks. So, I mean, freedom of movement, they think... They often think it just means freedom. Well, it's freedom of movement. Why do we have to register and stuff? And of course you do, you are supposed to, even within Europe, you are supposed to register. So they do things like, don't tell anyone they've moved and they just move. And then you hear stories like, for example, they went back to the UK to, to use the National Health Service and were told that they weren't allowed to anymore because once you've moved, you're not supposed to go back to the UK and use the National Health Service but they didn't realise that, and somebody in their village had reported them and said, well, they've moved. But they haven't done anything about getting cover in Spain, so they're not covered anywhere anymore. They do things like they haven't reported that, that they're resident and haven't got residence permits, which at this time we were supposed to do. But they didn't actually need to get residence permits, but because they didn't know they didn't really have to, they then try to stay under the radar because they're nervous about what the rules are and what the regulations are. And they're not speaking good enough Spanish to learn, so then they don't have the right kinds of capital, the right kinds of social capital, the right kinds of educational capital to, to find out what they need to find out. They don't have enough economic capital to go to a lawyer and say, just help sort this out. So they stay under the radar. I'm sure you've all heard these sorts of stories before with other migrant groups. And they're working... Um, informally, cash in hand, not paying any contributions to future pensions, not paying any contributions to health or any kind of social security contributions. So, you know, when things get difficult, they just have to leave and have to land themselves on the, on the British government. What, so what's happening for a lot of people in Spain is what we would have to call social exclusion. People who are working informally and insecurely with no health or pension provision. And even, we even met quite a lot of people who just are, you know, you've got people who are putting children in state school, but they're struggling because they're not speaking enough Spanish. And that's something I could talk about for ages as well, but not really relevant to, to this. People are putting their children in private schools so that they can speak in English, but they can't really afford to, so they're struggling. Or people who have just got themselves in such a muddle, they're not putting their children in school. And I was really surprised at how many people just had taken their children out of school. Their children weren't being schooled. So, you know, all sorts of things happening there that could only be called social exclusion. So, I'm going to surprise you by finishing early. <laughs> how might we begin to understand this, this liminality, precarious situations, and what we might call social exclusion. Well, I'm not standing here asking you to say, oh my God, the poor Brits, because that's just not going to happen. <laughs> I'm not asking you to, you know, to consider that we might call them postmodern refugees or something, because that's not going to work either. 
But I do think we have to think a little bit out of the box and you know, avoid stereotyping uh, elite migrants as much as we avoid stereotyping any migrants. And what, one thing that we've written about earlier on in this field is sort of talking about this migration but I don't really have anything much to say about that picture other than that I saw, saw it, that poster and it's on a wall and as I took the picture these people were walking past the wall so I just quite liked the, the sort of hidden message there, tourists are terrorists. Um, because in Spain the British who settle there and the Germans and the Westerners, uh, the Northern Europeans who settle there, get called residential tourists. So they're kind of blurring this notion of what a tourist is with the migrant here as well. But what I was going to say was, you can often conceptualise these migrants using the rhetoric of Beck, Baum and Skiddens, you know, thinking about how social life has become much more individualised, how Bauman talks about how, how instead now of trying to change the world and having social movements that try to change the world, what people do is just try to change their own worlds and seek their own, you know, self-realisation and so we have these individual reflexivity, individual life searches, people feeling free to move away and I think there is something in that, I mean that does go part way to explaining this kind of broader cultural shifts if you like, that not just cultural of course, there are sort of economic shifts and you know, thinking of neoliberalism and neoliberalism and economic shift and a cultural shift and it's become global. And these things do seep through into people's habituses and, they, and people start to think and it starts to give people the idea that maybe they can live a different life. And of course technological change, um, things like you know, the internet and rapid movement, rapid travel and those things, they give people the opportunity to live life in a different way. So there are all these fairly big structural shifts that give people the opportunity and the possibility and the idea that maybe they could do something different. Maybe I don't have to live near my family. Maybe when I get old, I could move away. Maybe I can just go and live somewhere where I've never thought of living before and start a whole new life. And maybe if it doesn't work, I'll just go home afterwards. So these can be conceptualised, I think, in those terms. But if you do conceptualise it in those terms, then, then if you take it a bit further, then these people also don't put up much of a fight when things don't work, don't work right. They blame themselves. They don't. So, so you don't hear them getting involved in politics very much. You don't. You know, they they don't try to fight for their rights. They don't get together and club together and claim their rights. They they say things like, "Well, we're a guest here, and you know, we have to acknowledge that we're a guest here." And, we don't, it's this kind of strange humility that you don't really have a right and we should really fit in. And so they try to negotiate the boundaries and, and they have more or less forms of capital with which to do that. So you hear these incredible creative stories, but they don't, they, they don't try to change things and, and try to sort of confront the state, as it were, and actually do it in that way. So, your Caroline Oliver has written about lifestyle migration and the governance of lifestyle migration in a book about the governance of migration. And, and she said that in this book, Betts, is it? That, you know, the argument in the book as a whole is that governance of migration tends to be this kind of patchwork affair, with sometimes managed at the, the 
you know, fairly systemic level, but also kind of with various soft policy tweaks. And, and Caroline's saying that the governance of lifestyle migration is even more ad hoc. It just seems to be little bits stuck on here and there. I think it's more than that. I think it's, it's better if we see it as a practice, as something that shifts and changes, but that what's happening is that there are all sorts of assumptions that people are bringing with them. So the agents have all, the agents of the state have all sorts of ideas about who an elite person is, how much money they've got, who they might need to attract, might, what they might want, and then having to shift those in face of actually what happens and who they get. The lifestyle migrants themselves are, are, are able to negotiate to some extent, and that's their practice, um, but they're bringing all sorts of capitals and expectations with them, and they also have to, to shift what's, what's the reality, their, their expectations to the reality. Therefore, there are new outcomes, like shifting policies and moving all the time and who knows what might happen in the future but this idea of this gold visa in Portugal is, is one example of how governments around the world have picked up like quickly on the idea that you could have these special visas to bring in money. What they don't seem to have learned from yet is the experience in Spain that when they embraced residential tourism it had all sorts of nasty side effects that they hadn't really thought about. Not least huge damage to the environment um, and to local farming in some areas. And finally, um, one of the things that's happening, one of the things that I haven't thought about much, but you, you might have, I don't know, it, it does seem that the shape of the global elite is, is changing and who we might assume now are the elite globally is something we're having to not, no longer take immediately for granted especially when you look at the groups that are taking up these visas around the world, how people who we might think white Westerners, therefore, rich, might <coughs> want to a struggle and we might need to look at. This is a picture of Discovery Bay. You can't see it. Does anyone know Discovery Bay in Hong Kong? It's an, an amazing place. I would like that to be my next study. It's, it's, it's in Hong Kong on Lantau Island, and it's kind of where the expatriates live. And you, you, you could just go there and just do a study of the global elite because the expatriates go, seem, seem to be attracted there. There are no cars, it's all golf buckets. So you have to get a boat from Hong Kong Island to Lantau Island. And then when you're on Discovery Bay, there are no, this part has got no cars, just golf buckets. And it's very beautiful. It has schools and things. It's incredibly mixed in terms of nationality now. There's, of real shifts all the time in, in terms of which are the dominant nationalities. Uh, it's no longer white Western, it's predominant.